Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you very much for your word. May it be a seed planted in our hearts. May it have what it needs to germinate and grow and bear fruit. Bear fruit for our lives, bear fruit for the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Two scriptures from Paul's letter to his friends in the city of Colossae. He called them Colossians. Uh, The two sections are from chapter 1 and chapter 2. He writes, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, so that you may have all endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him... God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, I'm just going to pause there really quick. If you don't know already, Paul writes like a waterfall. You know, and the words just tumble out. And if you're the kind of person that's like me, where you're trying to like connect it all, just don't try just let it like stand under the waterfall of the words of Paul and just let it come down. Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. Erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Apostles' Creed, this week, the line, the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're looking at this week. I want to begin, though, by asking ourselves the question of what is what is a human? And what does it mean to be human? What does it mean not just to sort of exist and have your heart beat and to be kept alive? This is not a medical question. This is a question of what does it mean to live the good life? A full human existence. 
Um, you might say your best life, or you might just say, I want to live the best version of myself or something like that. What does it mean to, to live a fully fulfilled human life? Um, one of the answers we got for this in the last hundred years was from uh, a whole movement that was sort of exemplified by a couple named Helen and Scott Neering. Helen and Scott Neering moved from the city to Vermont and then to Maine, and they lived, uh, they wrote a book called The Good Life. And this became a sort of like manifesto of the back to the land movement in the 70s. Some of you may have participated in it. Some of you uh, may be familiar with it. Um, but it's, it's sort of this idea that the world has become way too industrial and we've got to get back to the land. We've got to get back to the soil. We've got to get back to self-sufficiency and we don't need so many things. We don't need so much stuff. And, and if we just lived simply, with just a little bit of cash, grow our own food, independent of, of, the, of, of the industrial society, then we would live the good life. One of the most well-known and maybe the most devout of the Nearing's followers, Helen Scott Nearing, one of their most devout followers was a guy I really admire named Elliot Coleman. Elliot Coleman is um, now known for being um, one of the great organic farmers of our age. Uh, he wrote some books that have become sort of like the Bible for organic farming. And he bought land right next to the Helen and Scott uh, in Maine, 60 acres, raised his family and said, read the book and he said, I'm going to do it. They, they, they gave us an idea of the good life. Well, I'm going to live it. I'm going to be the disciple of this. I'm going to do it right. Um, not too long ago, uh, probably about 10 years ago, his daughter, who's now grown an adult, uh, wrote a book about how her dad did. Uh, we know about his experience as an organic farmer, but we didn't know how that experiment worked. She wrote a book and she details the failure, the utter failure of what he did. They lived on 60 acres, marriage fell apart. One of his daughters died in a tragic accident involving a pond on the land, and she grew up with a lot of heartbreak and sorrow. The title of her book is fascinating. The title of her book is, This Life is in Your Hands. It raises a really important question. As all these back to the landers said, we shouldn't let other people tell us how to live. We shouldn't let anyone else define what life should be like, whether it's the captains of industry or Instagram or whatever it is. We should be responsible for our own lives. But are any of us really capable of taking responsibility for our lives and living them the way we think they ought to be lived? Can anyone achieve the ideal that's, for instance, the, leering, the nearings laid out that they called the good life. Turns out not even the Nearings could do it. They talked a lot about self-sufficiency and all this kind of stuff. And um, in reality, they were supplementing their life. Uh, they were ordering grapefruit from the tropics. They were taking shots because they weren't getting enough vitamins based on their diet. 
And, uh, and that was not known um, because they didn't put it in their book. And so all their devotees thought, it is possible. And it turned out it wasn't. What is the good life? And if we, even if we knew what it was, would it be possible to live it? Colossians gives us a picture of the good life, of what it means to be fully human. I read so much of it because, because I want to get a sense of the larger context of what the good life is, even though I want, to, I want to summarize it with this phrase that we find in the Apostles' Creed. The good life is forgiveness of sins. The good life is forgiveness of sins. Paul says the good life has multiple aspects to it. He says we're transferred from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light. Paul says we're reconciled, peace through the blood of the cross. He says Christ is the fullness of God and we are brought into the fullness of God himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we are alive together with him through forgiveness of sins. The good life then is three things, peace, freedom, and fellowship. Peace, peace with ourselves, peace with other people, peace with the land. Who doesn't want to be at peace? How do we, how do we find ourselves at peace? There's nothing more destructive to the good life than broken relationships. Paul says we can have peace. Freedom. Freedom from destructive forces in the world. Freedom from fear of death. You can't have the good life if you're enslaved to all these things. The good life is about freedom from everything that would destroy us. And then finally, fellowship. How can you live the good life all by yourself? You can't. Living the good life means never being isolated, never being rejected, being in deep communion, being fully known and fully loved. Sounds like, yes, the good life. It sounds like heaven. How we get there is forgiveness of sins. It's not 40 acres. It's not bravery. It's not a goat, even though I really want a goat. I want a goat really bad. It's not single-minded focus, it's not courage, it's not intelligence, it's not a spouse, it's not a family, it's not the right job, it's not the right church, it's forgiveness of sins. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, the early church, uh, when they first started summarizing the faith for people who were getting baptized, they did not include forgiveness of sins early on. It wasn't part of what people would say when they were baptized. It came about a little bit later. It came about at a very important time. It was this. Christianity was outlawed for quite a while, first 300 years or so. And then right around 380, Constantine said, you know what, Christianity is legal now, and we're not going to kill any more Christians. So, obviously this is good news for everyone who's being hunted and attacked, but it created a new problem in the church because not everybody stood up to Rome. Actually, quite a few Christians apostatized. What that means is they turned on their faith. They would renounce Jesus, things like that. In fact, many Christians were priests who, who renounced their faith. And they would say, no, 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 I don't believe in Christ. Please don't kill me. Now Christianity is legalized, and these people want to get back into the church. 
And a really difficult question arises in the church. Who are we? Are we a group of people who stood firm, who stuck to our guns, who did the right thing? Or are we going to let these other people in? And if we let them in, what are the conditions? Do they have to be baptized again? Do they have to go through the process again? How does this work? And one answer became very, very clear. No. One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Anybody who's been baptized is allowed in this church. Why? Because there's only one kind of person in the church. Someone who's forgiven. That's it. No other kind of person. It goes to the heart of what life is all about. What defined them, what defined the early church, and what defines us now, what defines you, what defines me, is not how faithful you are. It wasn't that um, we've sacrificed a lot in order to be here. You know, for the early church, it wasn't all that they had lost in the process of sticking to their faith. It wasn't how much they'd accomplished either, their successes. I think this is one of the hardest things about forgiveness of sins. You know, for people who've done horrible, horrible things, you know, we like to embrace the forgiveness of sins. But what about people who've done really well? What about the successful Christians? What about, what about the Christians who, who have kept it together and haven't been awful and have worked really hard and have served the church? I mean, shouldn't we get like a little more? Shouldn't we get like a little bit better of a status? I think that's who it's hardest for in some ways. But what they discovered and what we are discovering this morning is that the identity of, is not different than cowardly apostles. Everybody is in the same boat because we are all forgiven. Paul writes, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a lot of ways to mess up what forgiveness is about. Um, it's not a pass. It's not God choosing to ignore some fault. It's not just debt cancellation either. When we think about forgiveness of sins, it's not, you know, you mess up, God says, okay, okay, you know, you're back to zero, and now the rest is up to you. It's not like those things in bowling that fill the gutters. What are they called? Bumper rails, I think. Is that what they're called? Yeah. It's not that. And then, and then you have to do the bowling. But you've got some bumper rails in case you get too far out of line. That's not what forgiveness of sins is about. I think this is um, one, of, one of the ways this is particularly challenging is that when, when we talk about forgiveness of sins as this sort of debt cancellation, often what will come next from somebody, unfortunately like me, like a preacher, is to say, look how much God has done for you. Now, don't you need to get it in line? You know, so then there's like the guilt trip that follows. God has been so good to you. Look how much it costs God for you to exist. So, what are you going to do? How good are you going to be? Can you be good enough? Mm, you owe him a lot. So instead of it being a debt cancellation, the debt is just transferred to God, and you have this eternal debt to God that you will never, ever, ever be able to pay. 
That is not what forgiveness of sins is about. I hope that's clear. Forgiveness of sins says that your life has been swapped. It's been exchanged. Elliot Coleman's daughter wrote that book, This Life is in Your Hands. Well, your life is not in your hands anymore. Your life is not in your hands. We are forgiven because God exchanged his life for ours. God took responsibility for our life. He became accountable for our life. He wrapped himself in the flesh of your existence. So all the questions you're asking about, how do I make my life meaningful? How do I get up to some standard of the way I'm supposed to live? How, how at the end of my life, am I gonna be able to look back and say, I did a good job, I did enough, I did the right things, how do I live without regret, all this kind of stuff. Those aren't our questions to ask anymore. We don't have to ask that. We are no longer responsible for our own lives because God has taken responsibility for our life. If anyone attacks you for something you've done, they're attacking Christ because Christ has taken responsibility for your life. His life, your life is in his hands. Yesterday, I was able to um, give a funeral for uh, someone I didn't know. Someone uh, who, by all accounts, was a wonderful human being. She lived with chronic illness. Her name is Kim. She, her, her life intersected with, um, with Peak's life before I was here. So over 10 years ago, they intersected just briefly. Um, her and her husband were in a, just a tough spot financially, and Peak was able to help out the family. And so when she passed away in August, uh, she was living in Castle Rock, but her husband said, I can't imagine any other place we'd want to have the funeral than at Peak Community Church. And I said, well, of course, I'd be honored to um, officiate. I never know. Is it, is it officiate, Scott, a funeral? That doesn't sound right, though. I feel like it's weddings. That it's a, it's a both? I think it's good. Okay. Okay, all right. Thanks. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, we're here at the funeral. Again, all accounts, an amazing woman. She lived with chronic illness, but didn't make her life about her illness. She made her life about other people and made it about God. That was her life. And so, you know, it's like the best possible funeral you can do. And, um, and so we're all, we're all up here in this spot. And instead of the um, bread and the cup, we have her, her urn and her ashes are up here. And so we put hands on her, and we're committing her to the Lord. And, um, and one of the things I always include are some old words when I do a funeral. And I, I always include these words. I ask God to recognize uh, a sheep of his own fold, a lamb of his own flock, a sinner of his own redeeming. And I love the first two images, but the last one, the center of their own redeeming. I, I had a little part of me, and I often have this, a little part of me that doesn't want to say it. Because she was such a great person. But then it hits me. Oh, that's why. That's why she was such a lovely person. That's why she was so wonderful. Because she didn't take her own life in her hands. She gave it to God. And she said, my life is in your hands. And that freed her to become the person that she became. What happens when we take responsibility for our own life? 
I'd love to say that there's a few people who pull it off and do an amazing job, but it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Instead, when we give it to God and allow God to take responsibility for our lives, something wonderful happens. Jesus talked about it as building on two different foundations. You can try to build the house of your life on sand and it will just kind of crumble. But if you build it on a rock, something else happens. A lot of people don't notice this, but in that analogy, there's actually quite a bit of freedom. If you're building your house on a rock, you can do some pretty cool stuff with your house because it's on a rock. Like if you anchor it to the rock, you can have like curved walls going out here. You can have like a big old pinwheel on it. You can have like neon lights on the top. But if you're building your house on the sand, you've got to keep it really small. You got to keep it, you, you got to put a lot of work into that little house to make sure it doesn't get washed away if it's on sand. But if it's on the rock, you can have a funky house. And that's what I want. That's what we all want. We all want this amazing, interesting, creative, funky looking house of a life. Good life isn't enough. Let's have an amazing life. Let's have an eternal life. Let's have an abundant life. We've been given a picture of the good life. It turns out a good life is not an idea. It's not even a religious system. I don't know what religion is. This is not a religious situation. We're just talking about a life here. And the name of that life is Jesus. Thanks to the forgiveness of sins, Jesus's life is now in our hands. Our life is in his hands. His life is in our hands. We have four gospels that tell us all about it. And if we want to learn how to live an abundant life, a funky life, a wild, beautiful life, we need only to study the Gospels and understand what that life looks like and live it in the lives that we've been given to live. To follow him, to become a disciple. Not as Elliot Coleman became a disciple and found out it was all a sham, but to prove it right. To become a witness of Jesus' abundant life and then to show it to other people and offer it to others. Jesus does live the good life and he gives it to all of us as a gift to build on all through one thing, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing all your fullness in Jesus a Jewish tradesman who lived his life holy of love and was raised from the dead. In his name we live our lives. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you and may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.